So, I live out uh, in the Hortonville School District, so Hortonville. My neighbors out there, they're tuning in right now, and I live out by them. I live out uh, in that district, in the Fox West area, and our house came with a technology and a really cool feature that we didn't know. No one put it on the you know, brochure, like advertising the house at all, um, but it's really cool. It's this amazing thing in the bathroom where whenever someone flushes a toilet anywhere in the house, um, lava shoots out of those running showers that are currently on, just scalds you into a stupor. It's like Indiana Jones, that face melt moment. It's amazing. It's really incredible. If there's any plumbers in the audience that want to come over and take a look at the technology and maybe install it into their own house or a neighbor's house. Uh, it's great. Okay, actually, it's terrifying. Okay, it's, it's terrifying. And I'm being a little facetious, but uh, every time a toilet flushes somewhere, I just kind of... I just kind of like panic if I hear it. Um, fear, I'm being a little dramatic, but not that much dramatic, okay? Fear is something you can't choose. Uh, you can choose how you respond to it, but you can't choose your fears. Like you have an experience as a kid or something, something happens to you, fear chooses you. Like you just, stuff happens, and all of our fears are different. Uh, you might see somebody that never punishes their kids, and you might be like, well, they're afraid of you know, losing their kids' approval. And you might see somebody that always punishes their kids, and you're like, well, they're afraid of their kid not growing up to an upright standing citizen that makes them look good. You might see somebody that works all the time and you're like, well, they're afraid of losing some net worth or losing their job or their status. You might see somebody who's single and think they're afraid of getting married or you think, and they're dating all these people that are all kinds of problems and you're like, well, they're afraid. You might see somebody who's married and be like, they got a bunch of fears. I mean, you, just, you might see all kinds of, and it's all different. And here's what social scientists have argued about. They've argued whether or not the reason we're so infatuated with telling stories of heroes, because we believe it makes us brave, they'll argue that when they look at history, the reason that the earliest pieces of literature we have are about stories of heroes. This is really most of ancient literature is about stories of heroes. Why? Well, they think because it's how we transfer as a, our, our collective psyche and our communities. That's how we transfer values of nobility and virtue is by telling stories of heroes. It makes us brave, right? If I listen to one more Jocko Willening podcast, I will be braver, right? That's what we think. Or if I watch one more Avengers movie, you know, we'll be braver. We gotta, you know, that's why we make all these movies about heroes. Well, we're gonna test that theory today with a hero named David. King David slayed Goliath, right? We talked about this a couple weeks ago. He's this hero king who killed Goliath, and he's like the up-and-coming guy in Israel. And King Saul is jealous of him, but David is the hero that everybody's excited about. We're gonna look at three types of people that hear the story. They hear the stories of David and his heroic actions, and they respond with three different ways. And we're gonna see which one actually yields real, honest, fearless courage. The first one is coming to us uh, is in, actually, they're all in 1 Samuel 18. That's where we're gonna hang out today. 1 Samuel 18, chapter five, this is the first group of people we wanna look at. It says this, whatever Saul asked David to do, David did it successfully. So Saul made him commander over the men of war, an appointment that was welcomed by the people and Saul's officers alike, because they know he's this hero guy. When the victorious Israelite army was returning home after David had killed the Philistine giant Goliath, women from all the towns of Israel came out to meet King Saul. They sang and danced for joy with tambourines and cymbals. This was their song. Saul has killed his thousands and David, his 10,000s. Can I ask you a question? Do you think that the reason that God 
orchestrated this whole thing where, where David slays Goliath and, and kills this, this giant. Do you think the reason God had that orchestrated and kind of mapped that out was because he was really hoping his people would give David all the credit? That rather than like worshiping Saul and singing songs about Saul, now they're gonna, now they're gonna sing songs about David. Do you think that was God's, do you think that was God's purpose? No. No, even David was, his heart was like, no, the Lord's gonna deliver us. The Lord is the one who delivers me. He's gonna deliver us from this Philistine giant. It was the Lord. No, but what do we do? What do the people do? They don't worship the way maker. They worship the way. Now, before we start thinking like, well, we don't deal with this. This isn't what, what we do. Uh, let me just ask you, I, as a pastor, I've seen it as a youth pastor. I remember talking to students, right? They would grow up in our youth group. And if you know anything about being at this church, we are all about, we have a value of excellence. Why? Because we believe God is worth it. Everything we do in youth ministry, everything we do here, everything we do in the church, kids ministry, men's ministry, women's, everything, we try to do it as best as we can, better than it's ever been done. Every year we're trying. Why? Because God is worth it. The reason we'll never take our foot off the gas pedal of trying to be as creative as possible with music and art and light and all the cool stuff we do is because God is the most creative being in the universe and we know him personally. We ought to be the most creative. Not Hollywood, not Coachella. We ought to be the most creative with our worship and our art for God. But as I talk to alumni from the youth group, over the years, as I, as I talk to them, I come back, I say, how's it going in college or wherever you're doing? They're like, well, I don't know. I can't find anything like Greenhouse. So I kind of dropped out on church stuff because I just couldn't find anything. I couldn't find anything like Greenhouse. I couldn't find anything like Alliance. Even if you're at Hortonville, you know you're, a lot of people are there because they love the smallness of the community and how, how intimate it is. And that's all good. That's what God used as a means to draw you to himself. But what happens? There's a drift Inevitably, even among Christians, there's this drift in our heart to drift toward the means by which God used to speak to us and draw us to himself. We end up being drawn to the means, not the way maker. As pastors, we talk about like this. We gotta be real careful because what you attract people with, you, yeah, inevitably, you attract them to unless you make it really clear over and over again, you never stop from the highest volume, reminding yourself and all of us why we do all this. It's for God. We don't need any of it, but let's use as much of it as we can to worship God. But inevitably, we worship the stuff. So what did the crowd do? They loved the hero king, they love the earthly hero king. That's hero fandom, right? The fans, fans of the new hero, the latest and greatest, the youngest, the coolest, the strongest, the new tactic, David. That's what they did. So that's, that's one response. That's a counterfeit bravery. We know that that counterfeit courage, that's gonna, fa that's gonna fail at some point. The next thing that happens in the story of some of them is that David ends up Showing his fallibility. You're gonna hear about that in the weeks to come. He is a very human person, in some ways more fallible than even Saul. Just as bad. So, that leads to ashes, right? It doesn't help. That's not real courage. You know, it actually doesn't inspire anybody to be actually brave. It just lets you down. But here's the thing. That's idolatry as well. And one thing about sin, idolatry or any sin, is that it, it never is stagnant. It always leads somewhere. Sin is not an act that you did and then you move on. Every time you tell yourself a half-truth, 
you lie to yourself or you lie to somebody else, that's not like an action that then is over. It's a seed and it grows unless you repent of it. Call it out like we're doing here right now. Like I'm calling out like, Lord, help us not be a church that worships the means, the way, but the way maker. Like we're, as we're, unless we deal with sin honestly, it's gonna grow. And this sin of hero worship, hero fandom inevitably grows into what we see in our next person. His name is Saul. Verse uh, verse eight here. This song that they were singing, this made Saul very angry. What's this, he said. They credit credit David with 10,000 and me only with thousands. Next, they'll be making him their king. So from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. You know, jealousy, it it actually... um, it doesn't just start there. It ha- there's some things that happen long before jealousy. How do you get to jealousy? Here's how it happens. You can never just be excited about something for something's sake. You never just be like looking through your Instagram and seeing all this cool stuff other people are doing that you're not doing and go, wow, that's great. Good for them. I'm so happy about all this cool stuff I'm seeing on my Instagram. It never, it, it never just stops with that. It always goes to the next step. It's comparison. This is the next step in jealousy. You always go, boy, look at all this cool stuff people are doing. That's awesome. And I'm not doing it. Look at all this cool stuff people are doing on Facebook, all the cool stuff they have. I don't have it. But it never stays there. It never stays there. It always leads to something else. On its own, that's a statement of fact. You know, they have it, I don't have it, statement of fact. But it doesn't stay there. It births something called desire. They have it, I don't have it, I want it. And desire always, this is inevitable, always leads to discontentment. You, you, can't, you can't be content and desire stuff you don't have. You can't, you can't be content. You're like, why do I have this undercurrent of dissatisfaction? Something's off in my heart and my life and I'm just looking at all this stuff that everybody else has and I don't have it and I'm realizing I want it and then all of a sudden I desire it and then it also leads to resentment. Discontentment always leads to resentment and jealousy. It's the opposite of love because what happens at this point is when you see somebody else rejoice, you don't rejoice with them, you grieve. When you see somebody grieving, you kind of rejoice a little bit. When you see that unfiltered post of what it's really like to be a parent, you're like, ah, good. You don't think you struggle with this. You don't think, why, why is it that when a star falls from grace, right, a celebrity, some untouchable perfect perfection, some other athlete, some other leader that's supposed to be immaculate, and then they fall and you just can't stop reading the news about it. You just can't stop going, well, what happened? We love to see heroes fall. We love to make movies about it. Why is it that when I see Phil Mickelson float a one-foot putt past the hole, I have an emotion inside it's not sadness for him. It's a little bit of glee. Why is it that when you see a gorgeous celebrity in a movie caught on a beach with their family from the paparazzi photos and you see a little bit of squish, you don't feel bad for them. You feel a little good about yourself. 
we all got it. We got this thing, this envy, and Saul's got it at the highest volume. Because for Saul, he's, he loves the idea of being the hero king. That's the natural response to hero worship. At some point, you love the idea of seeing him go down. This is where sin, every sin has a trajectory. This is just where this one goes. It leads to ashes. Third response. His name is Jonathan. Verse one and 18. After David had finished talking with Saul, he met Jonathan, the king's son. There was an immediate bond between them, for Jonathan loved David. From that day on, Saul kept David with him and wouldn't let him return home. And Jonathan made a solemn pact with David because he loved him as he loved himself. This is the kind, this is love where it's like, if you succeed, I succeed. If you're failing, if you're suffering, I fail. I'm linking my happiness to you. And when you suffer, I suffer. When you win, I win. If I'm winning and you're losing, I'm losing. I love you as I love myself. And then it goes on. Jonathan sealed the pact by taking off his robe, his royal robe, giving it to David together with his tunic, sword, bow, and belt. This is the part of the story where if the parents are talking to their, telling to their kids around the dinner table, the kids would just be freaking out. They would get up off the table. They would be running around the room. They'd be like, this is insane. This is amazing. What just happened? The parents were like, sit down and finish your dinner. At least in my house. But they'd be like, we can't. We can't. This is incredible. What, what? This is a, such a shocking event. In the ancient Far East, the heir to the throne, Jonathan, the son of the king, the rightful heir to the throne, has a job to do during that season. It's his job. It's a just, it's his, not just his birthright. It's not just expected of him. It's actually, it's, it's something he should be doing. He needs to be pushing down and defending his rightful place to that throne from anybody else that's trying to compete for it. And the idea was, if you can't, if you can't defend your right to lead in the chair, how are you gonna defend us as a nation? Part of a proving ground. You gotta be pushing everybody down, fighting everybody. You weren't giving candidates your sword, you were putting it in their belly. That's what you do. That's the that's the prudent, reasonable thing to do. I mean, I mean, this would be like two candidates hotly contested in a, in a campaign for president. And the week before the presidential election, one of them calls a press conference and pulls everybody in and says, Listen, this other candidate, they are, may have more integrity than me. They're a better leader than I am, and they got better ideas for this country, and I'm gonna serve them. That was the idea of giving the sword. The sword was, I'm gonna give it to them. I'm gonna serve them, and I'm gonna vote for them, and I suggest all my supporters should do the same. It would be mine. In the ancient world, it's even more than that. That sword that Jonathan's supposed to be using, that, that sword is supposed to be using to be destroying anybody that's trying to compete with the throne, for the throne by giving it to somebody who is a potential candidate is saying, you could kill me if you want. That's what, you would, that's what you're supposed to do. But if I lose and you win, I win. I love you as myself. This is so, this is so unreasonable. Listen to how Saul, what we're about to read is Saul's response, Jonathan's dad to it. And don't read it as just an irate rage. This is a very reasonable response to what Jonathan has just done. It's just, this is reasonable. Saul boiled with rage, it says, at Jonathan. 
You stupid son, he swore at him. Do you think I don't know that you want him, meaning, John, meaning David, to be king in your place, shaming yourself and your mother? As long as the son of Jesse is alive, you'll never be king. Now go and get him so I can kill him. This is the natural, this is natural. And not only is David, is Jonathan doing this, but he's doing it because he truly loves David. They share the same love. That's what good friends are. A pact is a mutual thing. It's not just Jonathan doing this, by the way. This is both of them saying, man, we're buds. We are friends for life. Why? Because they have something in common, the most important thing in common. David, all about the Lord. He knows it was the Lord that delivered him. He knows it's all about God. What does Jonathan want? It's all about God. And that is why Jonathan surrenders everything to David. Why? It's all about God. And these are Jonathan's words. The next morning, Jonathan spoke with his father about David, saying many good things about him. The king must not sin against his servant David, Jonathan said. He's never done anything to harm you. He's always helped you in any way he could. Have you forgotten the time? He risked his life to kill the Philistine giant. How the Lord, the Lord, not David. It's never been about David. It's about the Lord provided, provided a way for great victory to all Israel as a result. Nah, Jonathan's not submitting to David. Submitting to the Lord. Now, Jonathan, what do we know? Jonathan truly loves the true king, the Lord. The crowd, they love the hero king. Saul loves being the hero king. David, I mean, Jonathan, he truly loves the true king. What do I mean by truly love? It's not fandom. This isn't hero worship at all. This is true love. You see, Jonathan uh, shares a name with another guy in the New Testament named John. John wrote a book called, we call it First John. And in it, John writes this. He says, there is no fear None, not a little bit, not like fears minimized or pressed down. There's none, no fear in love. Why? What I'm about to tell you might be hard to hear, and I want you to know um, you're in good company. We all struggle with fear. Uh, my wife's a counselor. I know that this is a battle that a lot of people fight, and I, I fight it. We all fight it. We all have fears. We all have fears. We're all fighting this battle, and we're all in it together, and we need the Lord's help all the way in beginning, middle, and end. But this is, you need to hear this. Information is your friend. You need to know this about fear. Fear, at its root, if you want to pluck it, fear at its root is selfishness. Now, I know some of you are like, well, that's a double punch. Not only am I reeling with fear in my life, but now you're telling me I'm selfish. Listen to me. Fear at its root is selfishness. Here's why. Inside of all of us, God put this thing, and it's a good thing, and I'm so glad we have it. And it's called self-preservation. It's called self-preservation. Let me tell you something. If you walk backward into a highway, into a busy highway, you should feel something in here. <laughs> if you're walking backward into a highway, you know what you should feel? Concern. You should have wise concern for what you're doing. That's called wisdom. That's a good thing. God put it in you. And if you don't have it, you're broken. Something's wrong. Self-preservation is a good thing. But where concern crosses the border into fear is when your self-preservation, which is a good thing, 
becomes the ultimate thing. When it becomes, heaven forbid I get hurt, heaven forbid I lose this person, heaven forbid I lose this job, heaven forbid I get sick, heaven forbid my, my kids don't like me, don't approve of me, heaven forbid the status, people don't respect me, heaven forbid people don't understand me, heaven forbid I don't perform well. When, when self-preservation leads to fear, it's because self-preservation is the ultimate thing. And in love, there's none of that. True love. Because true love says, listen, I don't care what happens to me. I don't care if I get hurt. I don't care if I get uncomfortable. I don't care if it's inconvenient. When you win, I win. If you lose, I lose. If you suffer, I suffer. But if you win, no matter what happens to me, if you are blessed, no matter what happens to me, I am blessed. My happiness is linked to you. And in that kind of love, there is no fear. It is getting up every day and not saying, what is the bare minimum I must do to be a Christian, to retain that title? It is saying, how much can I give? It is saying, I hope I discover a new commandment from Jesus so I can take more of the territory in my life because where he is glorified more in my life, I win. When he is lifted up more in my, in my work, in my family, in my job, in my finances, I win. How much can I give to him? Now, what's the bare minimum? That's true love. And in that kind of love, there is no fear. Because you're linked, your happiness, to a God who always wins, is always redeeming, and is always glorified. So you must, this is hard. I mean, you must be sitting there and going, boy, I don't wake up every day thinking how much can I give of my life, of my will, my obedience, my finance. I don't wake up saying how much more I say. It's like, what's the bare minimum I got to do today? That's, this is hard. This is really hard. How do we do this? It only happens. It only happens if you can gaze into Ready for this? The true, the real king. How do we see that? Let Jonathan show you. Jonathan will show you. You see, Jonathan is not the only son of a high king who gave up his birthright, who gave up his royal robe, who gave up his sword who serves a peasant. He's not the only son of a king who left the throne room, the honor of being the heir apparent, forsaken by his own father, shamed by a crowd. There's another son of a king, son of the true king. His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus, and the peasant is you and me. And there's a difference. This is where the story diverges. We didn't kill a giant. We didn't kill it. We're just a peasant. And yet, just like Jonathan, Jesus Christ links his happiness to yours. This is why in the Bible, Jesus is called a man of sorrows. He's in heaven. He's in heaven, he's got everything. 
He's got peace and bliss and all this perfection and perfect justice. He's got heaven and he's a man of sorrows. Why? Why is Jesus a man of sorrows and he has access to the Father, unspeakable intimacy and community and love? He's got everything he needs, nothing, and yet he wants more. Why? He has linked his happiness to yours. And the idea of looking into the throne room of the Most High King and seeing an empty chair with you not in it made him sad. Jesus does not rejoice when you get, when I get what we deserve. It breaks his heart, but he rejoices in seeing you get what you don't deserve. You wanna know what Jesus' emotion will be on the day that you take your seat in the throne room of heaven, in the, in the, in the presence of the almighty king, when you sit down on that chair and you look around and then you see Jesus looking down and he sees you in the chair with the creator, the Lord Almighty, the God of the universe, and he sees you in it. Do you wanna know what his emotion will be? It is linked to yours in that moment. Your emotion, when you say, wow, look at this. I made it, I'm in heaven. This is the creator of the universe. There's Jesus, look at, I'm in heaven, eternal bliss. That is exactly Jesus' emotion. Look, it's Brian, he's here, he made it. I'm so glad, I'm so happy because he's happy, I'm happy. He has linked his life to yours. Question is, will you love him truly? You can't until you see his love for you. And when you see it, you can lay everything down. When you see how beautiful he is, how wonderful his love is, how faithful he is, how gracious he is, I don't care what happens to me. Look, I may not be a good pastor. This may not be a good sermon. We may not be the best, coolest church ever. But man, we are gonna love Jesus so much. That's all that matters to me. I love him so much. You may not be the best at whatever it is you're doing in life, but you know what? We're gonna love him so much because we see him for who he is. And so we just get up and they say, what more do you want? Take it all. I just love you. So these are the questions today that you can ask yourself. How can you worship any other hero on earth when you know what you've been given? How can you worship yourself when you know how you got it How can you fear the future when you know where you're headed? Let's stand, church. We're gonna spend some time in worship. Hortonville, you can stand up as well. We're gonna worship together as one church, many locations. If you're at home joining us, you stand up and let's worship together. Let me pray. Jesus, we got nothing. We're peasants. 
we're just, we're just peasants, but some, somehow you linked your happiness to us, Lord. So we, we link ours with you. We make a pact, a mutual thing. We've seen you today. We've seen how good you are. And so we lay it all down. We lay our life down. We lay our finances down. We lay our, our jobs down. We lay our status. We lay, lay our marriages, our kids. We lay it all at your feet. Come what may, we're not afraid anymore. We've seen you. We love you. And you're the hero. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's worship. David and Goliath, there's a moment where Goliath says, um, if I win, you guys are our slaves. If, you, if David wins or this other champion that you guys bring out, if he wins, uh, we'll be your slaves. He's called a champion. He's not called a champion because he's victorious in battle, though he was. He's called a champion because that's a military arrangement. We don't really have a word for this, but it's kind of like representative. It's actually a military thing that was arranged in that day. So rather than have all this loss of life, why don't we just send our best out and whoever wins, they're beneficiaries of that victory. Well, David isn't the only champion in the Bible. And in Hebrews, the writer talks about the other champion, the true champion. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily tripped us up. And let us run with endurance the race God has set out before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus alone, the champion. What he wins, we win. His perfect life, 
His goodness, his victory is ours. The champion who initiates, he started it and perfects. He's gonna finish it. He ain't done with you. If he started something, it's not done yet. He's still working on it. Who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he was so excited to see you in heaven. He endured the cross. It was worth it for him. Disregarding that shame is now seated in the place of honor besides God's throne. And all God's people said, amen. We'll see you next week.